Welcome to the Wellsteading Podcast. This is episode 213. Today is January 17th, 2017. I'm your host, John Pugliano. I'm also the founder and money manager at investablewealth.com. Well, here we have it. It's a brand new year. And as usual, I am behind schedule as well. Today, I want to give you a brief update on where my current stock portfolio is. Since the last episode, I have made a number of trades. More about that in a minute. For those of you that have been kindly prompting me to get a new episode recorded out here and to talk about my my stock trades, I appreciate that. I do want to remind everybody, though, that it's much harder to produce an audio podcast than it is for me to write a few words and put them up at my website. That's my firm's website, investablewealth.com. And so since it's easier for me to do that, my commitment and what I've tried to live up to is whenever I make a trade, whether I buy something or sell something, I've been really good about posting on my website at investablewealth.com the day that I do it. Now, I can't always get it up there before the market closes. In fact, one of my strategies is to buy at the end of the day. But you can rest assured, whenever I buy or sell something, I'm going to blog about it at investablewealth.com. You can subscribe free of charge. I'll put a link in today's show notes. If you go to the website, you'll see a big green button that says subscribe. You just put in your email address, click that button. It's done. I don't spam you. I don't send you things you don't want. If you want to unsubscribe, you just click at the bottom of the email and you're taken off the list. But if you want up-to-date reports on what I'm doing, uh, some quick commentary, usually I'll throw in a chart or something to explain what I'm doing, that's where you're going to find it. You'll hear about it at investablewealth.com before you hear about it here at the Wellsteading Podcast. Now, having said all that, let's jump into my portfolio review. Since the last week of December, I've been accumulating a number of positions. Most of these are in global ETFs. That's exchange-traded funds. Overall, I have 15 positions in my portfolio. I'm going to briefly and quickly run through each of those in this episode. Now, I'm not going to give you extreme detail on it, just enough to let you know my thoughts and my concepts You can use that to help you frame your own investing perspective. And if you want specifics, again, go back over to investablewealth.com. You'll see the specific ETFs that I name out. And again, in some cases, there's some accompanying charts. As always, I'm not providing you advice or recommendations. I'm simply telling you what I do. You need to always assess your own situation and do what's best for your portfolio. Now, as far as where I'm at right now with these 15 positions, You can really sum things up as I'm in three distinct areas. I'm in global stocks, I'm in U.S. value stocks, and I have a few speculations. If you break down those 15 positions that I'm in, eight of those are in global ETFs. Four of those positions are in what I consider to be sectors of the U.S. economy that are undervalued, and and actually three of those are stocks. One of them is in the form of an ETF. And then finally, my speculative trades are all ETFs. I, I generally almost always only make speculative trades in ETFs, and I'll get to those at the end of this podcast. What I think you really want to focus on and take away from today's episode, though, is my thoughts around where we're going with the global economy and then in looking at sectors that are undervalued. For those of you that have listened to me for a long time, you know that I'm not just a value investor or I'm not just a trend investor. I'm not a day trader or you know a strictly momentum trader. I try and look at three areas. I look at basic fundamentals. That means, is the stock making money? Does it pay a dividend? Is it a long-term, solid, and good, secure investment? And, and value plays into that. Usually when I'm looking at a fundamental, I'm either looking to make sure it's at fair value or it's undervalued. 
Then I look at specific trends. I look at what's happening with demographics and economics, world trade, what's happening in politics. You know, I look at all these different trends and I try and make some sense of them and figure out which sectors of the economy are going to be favored by those trends. And then finally, I look at charts. Now, generally, that's called technical investing. And that's where you look at a chart and you look at price volume action or you look at momentum. You look at things that are either breaking out or things that are breaking down. And so those are the three areas that I look at before I purchase a stock. Now, I can't predict the future. Sometimes I'm right. Sometimes I'm wrong. My overall goal is to be invested, to make money on my investments. And the best way I've found to do that is to not suffer a catastrophic loss. That's why for the better part of the last 24 months, I've made very few trades and I've been very selective in what I purchased. Now that worked against me when the market shot up early last spring and when the market shot up after the November presidential elections. But that strategy also worked very favorably for me over the past 24 months during periods of time like the summer and fall of 2015 when we saw the flash crash and the double bottom. And then again at the beginning of 2016, January, February, when we saw an even deeper double bottom in the market. Now, I avoided losses during those periods, but I also didn't make subsequent gains because I was really looking at a third leg down in the market that never came. Well, if I've been moving so cautiously for the last couple years, why am I getting so optimistic now? And why am I holding, you know, some 15 positions in my portfolio? Well, again, a lot of this is covered in some commentary and charts over at investablewealth.com. But if I can sum it up for you in just a few words, the largest concerns that I've had over the past couple years have really come down to three things. And they're interrelated and there's a few subcategories under each of these. But, but the big three are the slowdown in growth in China, the collapse in energy and commodity prices, primarily energy prices, and the zero or negative interest rates that we're seeing because of global central bank intervention with things like quantitative easing and artificial manipulation of interest rates. Okay, those are really the three big reasons. And again, they're interrelated. For example, a lot of the reasons that we saw commodity price collapse was because of the slowdown in China, but that wasn't the only reason. And specifically as it relates to energy, the reason we've seen the drastic fall in oil prices has been because of a production oversupply, not a lack of, of necessarily demand. There has been growing demand over these past couple years. It's just not growing at the rate to keep up with the expansion in production, particularly that we've had in the United States for the last you know 10 years. Uh, you may or may not be aware of this. And again, I, I talk about this a lot in posts over at investablewealth.com. I, I put up a couple recent ones talking about oil and the, and the petrodollar. But in about the last 10 years, the United States has doubled the amount of oil that's uh, generated in this country. Now, that has a lot of repercussions. One of them is that U.S. dollars are not being spent overseas to purchase oil. That's what's known as a petrodollar. That has meant an overall lack of liquidity in the U.S. dollar. Now, again, I'm not going to get into the details in this episode. We've talked about these in, in previous episodes. I've blogged about them. You can search on both wealthsteading.com and investablewealth.com. Things like oil or petrodollar or interest rates, and you'll find my previous comments. The point that I want to make is that it appears in 2016, we've seen the bottom of interest rates and commodities and oil. Now, I don't think the commodities and oil prices have, have necessarily totally stabilized. In fact, I think there's still going to be another leg down for those, particularly with oil. 
But I think in general, we're seeing oil in a trading range of somewhere between $30 and $60 a barrel. And the low at around $28 a barrel was put in briefly last year. As energy has recovered, we're seeing other things like copper and iron ore and other commodities have their prices increase as well. Now, again, I think some of them have gotten way ahead of themselves, like copper has in in recent months. But I think the general trend is that they're stabilizing, and we probably have seen the lows put in last year. That's good news. And then also, interest rates that have reached a bottom. I think central banks have figured out that zero and negative interest rates are hurting the global economy more than they're helping it. And again, those lows were probably put in the summer of 2016. So that takes care of two of the major areas I'm concerned with, commodities and energy prices, as well as interest rates. The third area of my concern, the slowdown in China, well, I don't think we've seen that yet. I don't think we've seen the bottom there yet. China's official growth rate is somewhere around 6%. I believe it's probably realistically more like 3 or 4%. And I think we're going to see further devaluation of the Chinese yuan and more of a slowdown in their economy before this is all over. So that remains the one really wild card that I'm concerned with. But other than that, I think the global economy is in fairly good shape. And I say fairly good because I'm also very skeptical of how far and how fast the U.S. stock market has moved since the November elections. Let's face it, if the underlying economy was as strong as the economic numbers suggest and as much as the media tells us they are, then two of the most stable global economies, which would be the United States and the United Kingdom, if things were really as good as the numbers supposedly indicate, then the Brexit would have never happened and Donald Trump would have never gotten elected. So we have to keep that in the back of our mind. We continue to live in very uncertain, unstable times. That doesn't mean there's going to be an economic collapse. That doesn't mean the stock market is going to fall apart. But certainly on any given day, we can see the S&P 500 drop at least 20%. We're way overdue for that. And I think looking at current valuations on U.S. stocks, they've gotten way ahead of themselves. And for the most part, they're overvalued. And so that has prompted my move into global stocks. In today's show notes, I'll have a link over to investablewealth.com where I show a chart talking about the global versus U.S. markets. That chart pretty much sums everything up. If you look at the left-hand portion of that chart, you'll see how the U.S. and the global economy had pretty much moved up and down in a strong correlation. And for the most part, that's what you'd expect. That's historically what happens. But since about 2014, and again, this is when we saw the collapse in energy prices, the correlation between the U.S. economy and the global economy diverged at that point. Since 2014, the U.S. stock market has pretty much moved up, while at the same time, the global economy has either stagnated or moved down. Now, assuming that things are getting better and we're going to see global growth get out of the anemic 3% GDP growth that it's been in for the past few years, I think that that will favor most countries. I think that'll favor the U.S. as well as foreign stocks. But since I'm so concerned that United States stocks are overvalued and have gotten ahead of themselves from a price standpoint, my thesis is there's much more room for global stocks to outperform U.S. stocks because the value is in the foreign stocks. Does that make sense? Take a look at that chart. I think it will. That's really the bottom line premise of where I'm at with investing right now and why I've concentrated eight global ETFs into my overall portfolio. 
little side note here too. I want to step back. I mentioned 2014 and how the market started to diverge at that time. If you're a new listener, go back and maybe listen to some of those episodes from that time frame. Back then, I was very much anti-China, very much pro-U.S. Even though I was taking a conservative stance and not jumping into the U.S. stock market, I was trying to advance the idea that the U.S. economy was the strongest on the globe at that time. And, and I was really making this point because a lot of people were still really focused on the BRICS nations. You know, this is before we really saw the big collapse in oil prices. And so people were still talking up the BRICS nations, Brazil, Russia, India, and China. And I was saying that those countries were very weak. I was also arguing for the strength of the U.S. dollar. The big emphasis I was putting on this was because so many people were buying in to the myth that the U.S. was going to lose its global status as a reserve currency and the Chinese economy was just going to take over the U.S. and all the um, petroleum and things was going to get priced in, in the yuan or the euro or something like that. And I just didn't see that happening. To me, the facts didn't state that. You could see what was happening with the petrodollar. And while the U.S. economy was still sputtering and was working to get out of the poor growth that we've seen since the, the recovery in 2008, you know, it, it has never really grown above about 2% on any annual basis. And that's actually going back for about 16, 17 years. The economy in the U.S. has really been stuck in neutral. I realized that. I knew that that was a clear and present danger. And again, if you look at the charts, 2014 was the year that corporate profits peaked. And although the stock market is up significantly since then, corporate profits are not. They've actually declined and stagnated. And perhaps as of last quarter, we've seen that turn around. It's been called an earnings recession. And we might start to see, particularly with some of these new policies, tax cuts, uh, expansion of things that might come out of the Trump administration, maybe we'll see these corporate profits start to increase. But that's been a problem, and I didn't ignore that. I knew that that was a clear and present danger. But at the same time, I knew that as bad as the U.S. economy was, it was still better than most of the global economies, particularly the commodity um, producers, the emerging markets, and all these things that were being hyped to investors, and, and particularly, again, that the U.S. dollar was going to collapse and that you should buy gold or that you should buy the euro or some other types of investments. Well, I think over the past couple of years, my thesis has proved true. And I bring this up because I took a lot of flack from people. In fact, if you go over to iTunes, you'll see at least one negative review that I, I received over there where somebody called me xenophobic. And I received a lot of comments from people like that, saying that, oh, you're a xenophobe. You're just so focused on the U.S. You can't see all the U.S.'s problems and, you know, China's going to take over and blah, blah, blah. Well, I did a lot of episodes saying that, no, the Chinese economy is still significantly smaller than the U.S.'s economy. Sure, it is the second largest economy in the world. It's still way behind where the U.S. is. And the strength of the U.S. dollar, as bad as it is, and as much as it's based on Federal Reserve manipulation and fiat currency and debt and all those kind of things, it's still head and shoulders above most other currencies and most other economies. So that was the point I was making back then. People called me xenophobic. Well, I wasn't xenophobic. I was just calling things the way I saw them. And now, today, as I turn to international stocks, I can almost guarantee that I'm going to get criticism from some people saying that I'm an American hater, that I don't think that America is strong or America can be great or whatever kind of garbage platitude you may be believing in. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying that I follow the money. 
I try and invest based on where I think the fundamentals, the trends, and the charts are taking us. If I think things are going to favor Germany over the U.S., then I'm going to invest in Germany. If I think that railroad stocks are going to do better than trucking companies, then I'm going to invest in railroad companies. I don't let my particular worldviews, my ideologies, my political beliefs, you know, whatever my bias and prejudices are, and I have them, believe me, and, and, and many of you know because you continually point them out to me. And while I can't divorce myself from those biases and prejudices and opinions, what I do try and do is not let them directly impact my investment decisions. Because when it comes to investing, my goals are to preserve my wealth, to prevent a catastrophic loss, and to put my money to work for me so I can make as much as I can. Oh, but I digress. Let's get back into my portfolio. Okay, three big themes. Global stocks, U.S. value, speculation. Here they are, rapid fire. The largest international position I have in my portfolio right now is an ETF from Vanguard. It's VEU, Victor Echo Uniform. Now, what it is, it's the total stock market, the total global stock market, minus U.S. stocks. It's put out by Vanguard. That's one I particularly like. I'm sure Spiders, iShares, Fidelity, all those other people probably have something equivalent. You probably have something very similar to it in your 401k plan, even though it's not called Vanguard's VEU. That's my predominant ETF in my portfolio right now. Again, the thesis behind that is that the global economy is going to improve and that U.S. stocks are overvalued. And so I want to participate in global stocks, not in U.S. stocks. Take a look at that chart that I mentioned over at investablewealth.com where the global economy diverged from the U.S. economy and it's been flat and stagnant ever since. I think that it's going to outperform the U.S. economy, assuming that things get better in general for everyone. My next global ETF is in emerging markets. Again, this is a Vanguard fund, V. W-O, that's Victor Whiskey Oscar. It's more risky because it's based on emerging markets. This gets back to those countries that are commodity exporters primarily. It uh, involves some of those BRICS nations that I talked about that have stagnated so bad over the past three or four years. Well, I think things are generally improving there, and that's why I've put some money into VWO. And again, that may not be a fund that's available to you, but if you look for a broad mutual fund that covers emerging markets, it's probably very similar to this Vanguard fund. Now, the next five international ETFs that I'm invested in are country-specific. There's about 230 or 250 economies that you can invest in. I'm going to tell you about five that I've picked. I don't know that these are the five best in the world, but again, based on valuations, trends, and the technical analysis of their charts, these are the five that I felt most comfortable adding to my portfolio. Now, the first one of those is Malaysia. This is an iShares ETF. The symbol is EWM. That's Echo Whiskey Mike. As I mentioned before, I'm still very concerned about China. I don't think that it's bottomed out yet. And so that's a concern not only for the global economy, but specifically for the countries in the Pacific. Malaysia is obviously over there. But I think that if things do improve in China and things generally get better, that Malaysia is one of the smaller countries that's most likely to grow faster than the others. Malaysia has good demographics. They're a big exporter of commodities and energy. They also have a growing consumer and services markets within their own country. And although they have their problems just like everybody else, I think from a political standpoint, 
they're more stable, you know, definitely than a country like the Philippines right now, and even more stable than some of the more developed nations like Taiwan or South Korea. Uh, again, with the, the shift going on in geopolitics, perhaps with Donald Trump challenging the one China policy and all that, that could be bad for the entire region, but it could be really bad for like Taiwan, South Korea. Um, I see it having less of an effect on some of the smaller, more growing emerging markets like Malaysia. My next country-specific ETF is in Ireland. Now, you might recall back in uh, probably early 2015, that was the last time I invested in this ETF. I'm in the exact same one. This is iShares. The symbol is E-I-R-L. That's Echo India Romeo Lima. Overall, I really like the Irish economy. They're part of the EU, uh, but they're not in continental Europe. I still have major concerns about continental Europe. I think the stability of the euro is in question. You know, it's almost at, at parity with the dollar. Again, that's something that I talked about back in 2014. People thought I was crazy. While at the same time, though, that I'm concerned about the euro, the fact that it's so low is going to benefit exporting type countries. Ireland has a very strong export economy. A lot of it has to do with higher end services and products, you know, things like um, medical products high-quality devices, food products, things like that. So I, I look at Ireland as being an opportunity to invest in the better parts of the European Union with less of the downsides. Now, using that same logic, uh, but moving to a totally different part of the world, is Israel. I'm also invested in an iShares ETF that's Israel-focused. That symbol is EIS. That's Echo India Sierra. The Israeli economy, much like the Irish economy, is based around high-tech exports. Israel does a lot with high-tech software companies, medical applications, uh, some very sophisticated uh, devices and um, defensive security type products. I think it's a good way to invest in a smaller country that has a lot of growth potential. Now, obviously, there's always a lot of risk with Israel because of instability and, and the probability of a war stirring up in the Middle East. Whenever a threat of war occurs or any type of saber rattling in the Middle East, Israeli stocks always take a hit, but they also always recover because they're good, strong, high-value companies. So I like Israel. It's been a long time since I've invested there, but I think they have a high probability of outperforming U.S. stocks. The next ETF is a Wisdom Tree ETF. The ticker symbol is EPI, and it's focused on India. Now, this Indian play is basically a bet, again, that the general overall global economy is going to improve. India certainly has a lot of problems. Their prime, new prime minister a few years ago, Modi, when he came in, there was a lot of um, euphoria and thoughts that he was going to just transform things. Uh, I avoided the uh, investing in India at that time because I knew that that was likely to, to uh, peter out. It has. Modi's been putting a lot of capital controls and other restrictions in. Uh, trying to do his best to grow the economy. The effects aren't as stimulative as what we've seen in China, and the culture there is totally different than the entrepreneurship and the growth that we've seen come out of China. But uh, India does have its place. There's a lot of challenges there. There's a lot of in infrastructure problems. There's a lot of overall um, environmental issues. And I don't mean pollution like in China, but just uh, the continent of India is a, is a tough place in terms of drought and non-arable land, things of that nature. But it has been growing at about 6%. It hasn't had as significant of a slowdown as China. And I think that it, it is at least going to continue that pace. So for now, I'm invested in India through that ETF EPI. 
Now, the last of the individual country ETFs that I'm invested in, this one's much more speculative. It's Mexico. It's an iShares ETF. The ticker symbol is EWW. That's Echo Whiskey Whiskey. Obviously, investing in Mexico right now is risky because of the potential tariffs and border taxes and the rhetoric coming out of you know building a wall and everything Donald Trump's saying. But at the same time, Mexico is a major exporter, particularly in things like petroleum products. If, for whatever reason, the U.S. stopped buying Mexican oil, which I don't think it's going to, I mean, the emphasis is really on things like manufactured products, but those natural-type resources, they're fungible. If the U.S. stops buying them, Mexico will send them to China or to somewhere else. The other thing about the Mexican economy, I do think a lot of the things that Donald Trump is saying are rhetoric, not necessarily based on fact. The trade deficit between the U.S. and the Mexican economy is not as great as you would believe. And if we start putting border tariffs on products that either go south into Mexico or come north out of Mexico, it's going to hurt a lot of countries and a lot of people on both ends of the border. So I don't think that's going to happen. Um, I won't be surprised if there is construction of a wall. I wouldn't be surprised if, at least on paper, it appears that somehow Mexico is going to pay for that. I mean, that's all things that potentially can occur, and you are going to see more um, things like the automotive companies not building plants and factories down in Mexico. But overall, I don't think that's going to hinder the main flow of goods that are supporting the Mexican market. The North American market is just too important to each other. Canada, the U.S., Mexico, all three of those countries are so intertwined with each other. If we start any type of tariff wars, particularly with the North American countries, we're going to cut our nose off to spite our face. And in that case, it's not only going to hurt Mexican companies, but it's going to hurt U.S. companies as bad, if not worse. Because remember, U.S. companies are much more overvalued at this point. If things fall apart, the Mexico stock market has lowered a fall because it's already dropped about 40% from its highs. While at the same time, the U.S. stock market is up a good you know, 10 or maybe more percent higher than it should be. This Mexican position, like all the positions, it's not without risk. I do like it. It's based on the fact that there's not going to be a trade war and that overall we're going to see increased global growth and that relative to the U.S. stock market, the Mexican stock market is undervalued. That's basically the premise with all these ETFs that I've just talked about. Again, I have no way of predicting the future. I don't know for sure. But what I'm telling you is not only my opinion, it's where my money is. It's where I've placed my positions. Now, the last of the eight ETFs that I own that are focused on a a global basis is not a particular country, but it is a particular international sector, and that's in the international healthcare sector. This is a Spider's S&P fund. Ticker symbol is IRY. That's India Romeo Yankee. My thoughts on this ETF merge a couple of the strategies. One, this is an international fund, which again, I think is undervalued. This specific fund and the reason I picked it is because it doesn't have exposure to U.S. healthcare and um, biotech type companies. All these companies are internationally based outside of the U.S. So that carries along to the, the trend of U.S. companies being overvalued. And then finally, the healthcare sector, I believe, is an overall undervalued sector. That's because of concerns that, uh, you know, the government, Donald Trump, may cut back on payments to pharmaceutical companies and insurance reimbursement, all those kind of things. These are the same type of concerns that were very much in vogue when Hillary Clinton was thought to be president because of the things that she had talked about and the things that she tweeted. Let me tell you why I don't think that the healthcare sector is in as bad a shape as people think it's going to. 
But before I do that, let's merge this into another ETF because now let's move over to my U.S. focus that I think is undervalued. And one of those is the healthcare industry. And so in addition to investing in the IRY, which is international healthcare, I've also invested in the Vanguard healthcare ETF, which is VHT. That's Victor Hotel Tango. Now, from an overall thesis that healthcare stocks are undervalued, let's put it in this type of a perspective. Fundamentally, most of these companies are sound. Most of them, other than the, um, the, the real extreme biotech companies, are very profitable. They pay dividends. Many of these companies have been around for 50 or 100 years, companies like Johnson & Johnson. They've survived recessions, depressions, hyperinflation. They've survived Democratic administrations, Republican administrations. I think they're likely to survive Donald Trump. They're also out of favor, which means that on a valuation basis, although they're not necessarily cheap, based on their potential growth prospects, I think they're fairly valued. Now, that doesn't mean they won't go down in the near term, but I think over the long run, the healthcare sector is going to do just fine. Now, I know some of you are saying, but hey, just the other day, Donald Trump pretty much said the same thing that Hillary Clinton did, that, you know, these pharmaceutical companies, they're... they're overcharging and they're unfair. And I think his exact words were, they were getting away with murder. Well, I know that spooked the market and a lot of people are concerned with that, but I'm betting on the fact that crony capitalism is going to pay off like it always does. I think that pharmaceutical company, health care companies, that they all have healthy profits built in. And if they need to shave a few pennies or nickels off of things, they'll do that. A lot of it's going to be whitewashing. A lot of it's going to be grandstanding. Bottom line, these companies are profitable, they're going to remain profitable, and the trend towards the market demand for more healthcare services and higher value types healthcare services, uh, that's an undisputed trend that's going to be going on for decades. So short term, these stocks are out of favor. I think down the road, they'll turn out just fine. You know, again, back to Donald Trump's comments or even Hillary Clinton's comments, their focus simply on the price part of it. Trump's position is that these pharma companies are making too much money. Had Trump said, hey, these pharmaceuticals, it's not that they're too expensive. It's not that the companies are making too high of a profit. It's that these products are ineffective. He didn't come out and say, we're going to take the millions of kids off of Ritalin because they shouldn't be on it in the first place. What he said was, we're just paying too much for it. Well, hey, I can live with that argument all day. Okay, let's move on with my three other U.S. value positions, and these are all individual stocks. These are not ones that I just recently purchased, although I have added to some of these positions. I'm not going to go into a great detail, but the stocks are Disney, Starbucks, Walmart. From a valuation based on their growth potential, these three stocks I felt have been undervalued. Some of them, like Walmart, I've been in for well over a year. In the case of Walmart, it hasn't panned out that well, but at the same time, I'm not worried about any of these three companies going bankrupt. I'm not worried about their long-term prospects. They all are solid blue-chip Dow Jones industrial companies. They might be a little bit out of favor with the market, but they pay a dividend and their price will eventually go up. Now, that's definitely been portrayed here lately with Disney. I've had Disney for, I don't know, maybe six months or so. It was very much out of favor until November, and since November, I think it's up something like 10%. But again, I'm not worried on these value positions about short-term performance. These are stocks that if I don't get an immediate bounce out of them, like a Walmart, 
I'll hold on to it for years. I'll collect the dividend. And I know eventually those assets are going to appreciate. That's the whole value play. Finally, that takes us to my three speculative positions. These are all ETFs. Once again, I want to advise you, these are speculative. They're not something you put a great deal of your portfolio in. In a speculative trade, I wouldn't put more than 10%. And in most cases, I put less than 5% of my portfolio into these type of trades. Now, these three positions are two of which I've had for a, a while now. And that's an oil short, DNO, and going along the, uh, the British sterling currency, which, which is FXB. As far as the oil short, I've been playing this thing on and off for, I don't know, two, three years. It's a very, very volatile position. I can have great swings in it from day to day. Uh, but I'll tell you, in the two or three years I've been trading DNO, at the end of the day, when I finally sold the position, I've never lost money. Right now, oil stocks are, you know, in that $52 range. This is after we supposedly have a big cutback from OPEC. I think we have another drop in, in the price of oil. I wouldn't at all be surprised to see oil drop back down to $30 a barrel. Um, so for now, I'm maintaining my short in oil. I want to emphasize this is a position that can move drastically and very volatile from day to day. 99.9% .9 of you shouldn't be invested in it. And in fact, if you look at my portfolio and with my clients, I literally have uh, just a, a small, very few a, a number of my clients invested in this trade. Now, literally, I have less than probably 1% of my, my clients shorting oil right now. So it's not for the faint of heart. It's something that most of you shouldn't do. I just tell you about it because it is in my portfolio. The other trade that I've had for a, a while now, um, since just after the Brexit, is FXB. That's the long position in the British pound. It's down about 10%, and that's in addition to the 10% it was down before I bought it. So I bought it when the, the British pound had collapsed about 10%. It's down another 10% or so since I bought it. This is normally a trade that I would have gotten rid of by now. I generally like to take losses at or before 10%, particularly when they're in a speculative trade like this. However, I do like the way things are playing out with the British pound. Even though the trade's gone against me, you know, over these past months, I think that long term, the United Kingdom is going to be much better positioned than the European Union. And that's because, as I've talked about in previous episodes, the common currency is a huge flaw and problem and something that's going to hold the European Union back. As, as much as it has benefits to it and as much as it seems to encourage cross-border trades, it also has a huge negative impact uh, in the fact that countries, particularly in Southern Europe, can't inflate their own currency. So a country like Italy, which has nowhere near the growth prospects of a country like Germany, is at a decided disadvantage when they have a common currency. Go back and look at previous podcasts. Um, I did an episode entitled, I think, something like the, the problem with the euro or something like that. I go into detail with it there. In any case, I think the Brexit is a, is a long-term good thing. And if nothing else, when dealing with currencies, you have to remember that they're all done on a relative basis. And generally, they're very self-correcting. And so the fact that the British pound has fallen so much, ultimately, that's going to encourage more British exports. And if they don't get exported to the EU, then they will find themselves exporting to other markets. I also don't think that the EU is going to totally kick them out of trade with the European Union. Because, uh, you know, much like Donald Trump's policies of, of tariff wars, it would be cutting their nose off to spite their face. Do you honestly think that people in Germany don't want rich people in Britain to, to buy Mercedes and BMWs? Do you think that 
people in Spain that own restaurants and hotels along the Mediterranean? Do you think that they don't want British vacationers to come there and enjoy the beautiful white sandy beaches in Spain? Well, of course they do. And so if they put unfavorable tariffs or other type of trade things on Britain because of the Brexit, it's going to hurt everybody's economy. Finally, my last speculative ETF, the ticker symbol for it is DBA, Delta Bravo Alpha. It is an agricultural commodity. Once again, this is speculative. It's a commodity. There are no sure things with it, but I've been tracking this for a long time. I purchased it once for a very limited time, I think in, I don't know, late 2015, early 2016, something like that. I only held onto it for a few days. Um, this time I do plan on holding onto it for longer. It looks like it's bottomed out. It's been in a long, long-term decline, but it has, since I've purchased it, uh, broke out above its 50-day moving average and then above its 100-day moving average and as of this week, it's above its 200-day moving average. Now, it doesn't mean that it's going to go on, but right now it does look like from a price-volume standpoint, you know, this is a classic example of what I talked about with technicals and with charts and investing with momentum. Those things all look very favorable. We'll have to wait and see how this pans out, but so far the trade is working well, and I wouldn't be at all surprised to see this agricultural uh, commodity ETF go up at least another 10% from where it is right now. So there it is. There you have it. That's my 15 stocks in my current portfolio. For more information to see some specific charts and some commentary, things like that, check out my observations and commentary blog over at investablewealth.com. Uh, for example, over there, you'll see more about the petrodollar. You'll see a chart on the Mexican economy where I show that right now it is holding support. You know, as low as it is, and although it's fallen over, you know, 40% off its high, it is sitting right now on long-term support. If you don't know what that means, check out the chart at investablewealth.com. I want to thank everybody for listening. I wish everybody a happy new year. And hey, things have been rough the last couple of years. There's a lot of uncertainty. That's not going to go away. That's not going to change. But you know what? You can't worry about everything. <laughs>